0: The topic for this session is um, basically, yes, personalization um, and why that's important, why should we do it, when should you do it, and that's what we're going to discuss. We have Guy and we have Niels, since we're on a first name basis now. Um, You all know Guy after his presentation, I think. So, n-
1: unfortunately for everyone, yeah. yep. No,
0: no uh, introduction needed. Uh, but Niels, uh, co-owner and uh, data consultant at the Data Story. Uh, anything you want to add to that small introduction? <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you do with personalization?
2: Um, yeah. So, so, my background uh, before this, before I became an independent consultant, uh, I worked at the Bairro for five years for Americans. Uh, that's basically Nordstrom. Uh, And there I worked on personalization and building it up from the ground up. So from nothing, build it yourself uh, and start doing it and learn it along the way. Uh, And after five years, I thought, I can do this also as a company for myself. Together with uh, a companion. Exactly.
0: And any specific tools you're using for personalization?
2: Preferably not. So it depends a bit on the client. Uh, At the back of we build a lot of things ourselves so we use for tracking we use snowplow and then went crazy in any cloud platform Uh, because we have the advantage to have engineers on hand as well so I could say to them you know what I want to test this and I have this model and I want to implement it and make it scalable and they throw stuff technological stuff at me and I was like yeah sure as long as it works and scales I'm happy Mm -hmm. Uh, and now it's clients it depends it could be any tool so some use home-built stuff some use uh, the bigger uh, customer data platforms, yeah, the usual.
0: Yeah, okay. And um, uh, the first question, uh, we already had the one in the app uh, during your talk, so maybe you wanna comment on that. Um, isn't AI just machine learning?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. We see people <laughs> using the terms interchangeably all the time. Uh, asking a bunch of data scientists, they would often say, look, AI is the umbrella, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. machines doing things that seem intelligent, Within it, you've got rules-based, which is what most of us typically do when we start personalization, and then machine learning, where the machine is learning stuff on its own. There are other branches of AI. But technically, machine learning is a subset of AI. AI is the yeah. big umbrella.
0: I think I've also seen a couple of fun memes saying that uh, if, if you want to uh, sell it, it's AI. If, uh, if you want to sell it to companies or marketing people. And if you want to hire people, if you want to <laughs> hire the smart people that wor- want to work with this, you call it machine learning.
1: <laughs> that resonates a lot, yeah. actually. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's basically the main difference. And if you're raising money, either one works. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I already had a question, another one for this session, uh, from, uh, because he's too scared to answer to, to ask it himself and he's also not here. He ran away. Um, but the, the question is, um, I think it's a very, uh, a common one, I guess. Uh, so most companies use personalization, uh, at specific places on their, on their websites, um, but. The, the, the algorithms can uh, make sure that the, the, the right content is uh, shown to the right person, um, but it doesn't really scale. Uh, you have many places on your website uh, that you can show different kinds of topic, but you need to generate that topic, uh, the, the content for that. Uh, and that's still something people need to do right now at least. Um, so how do you do this? How, how, how do you scale personalization in that sense? Once guy. <laughs> uh, first. Yeah.
2: um, in my experience, it's, it's a transition a company goes through. So the moment you start with personalization, for example, you have one content team creating content for one email, um, and that's being sent out the moment you start doing personalization. Also as Guy told in his, uh, presentation, um, you start rule based. So you basically start with some segments and you send out instead of one newsletter, you send out four. And often the content team can sort of work with that and and, and be a little bit more scalable. But there comes a point where everything breaks basically, where you have 25 segments, you have machine learning running, and everything needs to get together. That's the moment when basically the organization, for some part, needs to be slightly, or depending on how the organization is, restructured. Content needs to be created in a different way. So in my experience, what uh, we have done in the past is uh, break content in parts. So you have an image, you have text, you have different elements, different buttons, and you let them create that, and let the algorithm let it uh, come together
1: there. I have a very similar reaction, that as you're looking to scale, you should personalize throughout the entire experience. We find customers typically start with landing pages, or homepage, or checkout page, and then they personalize the whole thing. They might do something more uh, end-to-end, like I'm gonna change the nav for everyone site-wide, but then when they really wanna scale, we find them doing two things. One is just what Neil said, modularizing things. Uh, Trying different combinations of things. Machine learning's pretty helpful there because they can automatically try all the combinations. The other one is to do more than what was a premise of the question. Premise of the question was creating content. You can personalize a whole lot more than the content itself. You can personalize the tone, the organization of things, what you show, how simple things are, what you hide. We have customers who, without creating any new content, will pull things from other pages. Simple example, you're B2B, you're selling to businesses, somebody shows up, goes to a particular industry page, great. Next time they show up on your homepage, show that industry case study on your homepage, show logos from that industry on the homepage, greet them that way. All content you already have, but now it's more personalized, meeting your prospect where they are in their funnel with you.
0: How fast should you do personalization? um as a as an example, I did a user study uh where customers they went to the category uh page sold the their uh, the products they they already filtered on or whatever uh went to the product page uh oh, there's not the product I liked went back uh everything was different because it was personalized um it really <laughs> it didn't work for them <laughs> so uh, how fast should that be how how fast should you work that into uh, the customer experience
1: in my humble opinion. Yeah. That's a that's a test. Yeah. So y- you will have a hypothesis. You know, is somebody going to this category of products? Right, they went to the soda page. Is them going there once enough of a signal? Is yes. this a product where that signal matters? Like, if I'm going to you know Carrefour site and I go to the soda page, does that mean I only want to see soda? Of course not. But if I go to a car, if I go to Renault, Renault's page and I go to a sedan, should I see a sedan the next time I show up? Maybe, maybe in that considered purchase, it's worth doing. And so in my humble opinion, there is no universal truth. Like there is yeah. with so much of this, it's worth trying out.
0: Yeah, uh, aren't, aren't we making it much harder for ourselves if we uh, create these, these uh, never ending smaller and smaller groups that we, that we can test on?
1: In particular, if you're doing it with rules, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't scale. and That's why I think we typically top out at a few tens of rules. If, on the other hand, you say, look, I'm going to constrain the things that I know about. Like the example earlier, right? You're in Amsterdam. You see the Netherlands promotion. Okay, you know that. There are a handful of things like that. Or, you know, I I say, oh, they're interested in the sedan. Fine, I'm going to show them the sedan stuff. But the rest, I'm going to leave it unconstrained. I'm going to let a system go try all the possible combinations. So I actually make fewer choices, not more choices then I think it can scale nicely. Yeah. Does that resonate? Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Done.
0: Uh, audience questions on personalization. Go ahead.
1: Um, yeah, I've got one question. Do you think that um, you should always try to get as personal as possible, or do people experience some sort of <coughs> uncanny valley feeling at a certain level? Do you have any experience with that?
0: Where's the limit? Yeah.
2: Uh, th- there's certainly a limit. Uh, and I've hit it a couple of times. So we did a test where we predicted um, based on not the information, but the shoe size of a uh, client, and not based on the shoe size they filtered, but on other sizes they bought. So suddenly we showed a shoe size and was pre-filtered. And then you get, I think, also in an interesting topic where recommenders reach UX, which is closely related. Um, And we had the possibility to go to a store and ask customers, like, how do you experience this? And we had a, a couple of different ways to deal with this because you can um, make it scary by how you present it. So either you can explain it. So for example, we had an option where we said to a client or to a customer, you know, we predicted your shoe size based on the other sizes of clothing you bought. And so it was like, yeah, yeah, now I understand. Fine with it. Uh, another option is not to show that we know your shoe size, but just change the sorting of the products. And you will never know so we changed your experience without you seeing it or knowing it that we got this data
1: from you so there's yeah a playing field there but it's certainly uh, a point you can reach i agree completely and would add two additional things i think the line for what feels creepy continues to move you know 15 years ago 10 years ago you go to a large company's website and you say you're going to run multiple versions of your site they would say it's going to look broken there's no way you should do this But now we all experience Amazon and Netflix and other places and we're used to it. We expect it even in our business environments. So, you know, what was creepy before may not be now. Uh, You know, I think right now in like a B2B environment saying what company you're from because you did reverse IP lookup is like on the border saying, oh, I know your name is whatever your, your name. That for most people really is creepy unless you came from an email that was already addressed to you. So that's thought one. Thought two, you can ask permission. We have some customers that say, look, I want to personalize and I want to do it in an extreme way. I'm going to ask them either to say, hey, personalize this experience for me, literally as a button they press on the page, or ask them for segment. Right? We have some customers that like serve very different segments, like a marketplace. They have buyers and sellers. And you can say, look, am I a buyer or am I a seller? And then the whole experience will change because they made a choice themselves, which is similar to the explanation. There's a rationale for it.
0: How would you figure out the, the creepiness of a, of a page? Because I can imagine that uh, personalization that it works uh, within the session for a user, but it also creeps them out in a way that they might not return, that they don't somehow didn't like the, the feeling of, of this, that didn't have the great experience that they were looking for. Uh, they bought something because they needed it today for whatever reason, but they won't be returning for this. So how, how do you balance that?
2: How do you measure it or how do you balance it? I mean, how do you measure it is, is with basically all the tools you do A-B testing with. I th- in that sense, doing personalization, in my opinion, is nothing dissimilar than doing a regular A-B test. You yeah. ask your customer, you do your, your research beforehand, afterwards. Uh, you look at the metrics of returning clients. You look at customer lifetime value.
1: Yeah, you take those things into account. Yeah. I, I agree completely. It's qualitative and quantitative. Same metrics, and then I think you, you said it like, just ask. Literally, because there is that 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 subjective, individual creepiness factor that's worth talking to some people about.
0: Yeah, good one. Next, I go I ahead. Have, uh, yeah. uh,
3: an idea I want to plant in your head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I have philosophical thoughts about personalization. Um, big discussions in Brussels been going on for a while um, about this idea that personalization is basically about individualization. Me as an individual. And there's a very specific sector that will be impacted by this heavily, which is insurance. The reason why is because how is risk distributed within insurance? It's the fact that we're all together. And for that person that has a problem, well, basically all that money goes to that person one way or another. And so where would our societies go? And I'm not asking the question, I'm just planting that in your your heads as a seed to say, there might be businesses where pulling together is a good idea and where individualization might not be a good idea. So how far will indi- I- insurance companies go in terms of personalization is probably one thing to see and watch out for that might be like a barrier mm-hmm. to evolution. If, and if you have any thoughts, absolutely welcome.
1: <laughs> I do think... <laughs> N- n- Not on that specifically, but in similar things have heard people say, hey, should this be considered? You know, can this be a uh, contextual variable in personalization? Okay, technically, scientifically, yeah, of course it can. Do we as a society want it to be? I think those are two separate choices, right? You have the tool and then you have, what do you want to allow it to do?
2: I was thinking, uh, to me, it sounds a bit similar to uh, a question in, in the previous podcast I was asked about if your client says do it and, and someone else says do it, will you do it? And and there's also, within a company, that is something that needs to be decided. And uh, if it's possible, a company will do it. And it doesn't m- make it right. Yeah. But at the same time, there are multiple laws in place for areas like this. For insurance, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I'm not in that area of expertise. Um, but yeah, I, I can imagine that there are you always get bounced there uh, and, and high risks in that sense, where it destroys basically the product
1: insurance. And in other cases, trust. We had a customer ask us to do something that the motivation wasn't bad, but as we looked at it, we're like, this is deceptive. And they said, I understand, but I'd like you to do it. And like you, we, we, we said, no, we respectfully declined. We won't do this for you.
0: We, we can test it, but we, we shouldn't be implementing it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, we said we won't test it. We won't <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Next question. Uh,
1: how do you solve the, as you can call
4: it, the Netflix bubble? So, uh, when a customer uh, has a, some experience on a website, it's personalized, uh, come backs, comes back for two weeks, but after a year, it, it's maybe a totally different person. Maybe he or she is married or has kids or something, you know? So the bubble changes. From the person's life but does he enter the same bubble or
1: you know what i mean
0: yeah (laughs) or do you or do you reset or
1: yeah yeah so we've seen several techniques one is just that resetting from time to time starting from scratch and learning anew another one is to have a bunch of rules around behaviors that trigger effectively a reset or a move to a different segment you could imagine equivalent let's say in um B2B environment, right? Somebody exhibited behaviors, okay, I've never been here before, great, they're a fresh prospect. I've been here four or five times, maybe they're mid-funnel. I submitted a demo request, all right, they're later, later funnel, same logical thing, right? They're in a different bubble based on their actions. Third is to try uh, with machine learning to have something that's uh, continuously updating itself. So it's constantly taking into account new behavior and it probably has some notion of waiting, or it could have a notion of waiting of more recent behavior is more important than long-time-ago behavior. So that when he or she exhibits that new behavior a year from now, you said maybe they have kids, right? You can see, okay, now they're buying diapers. And, you know, a year ago they were buying, I don't know, beer.
0: You can look at action, but you can also look to inaction. It also is a factor in, the, in the machine learning.
1: Well said. Yeah, ma- maybe one small
2: addition. If if you're looking really from, from, an, from a recommender perspective, what you're trying to do is normally, if you look at a product recommendation specifically, you're trying to recommend products that fit the user really well. So one of the strategies that often is applied is then to do diversification around it. So you have 20 products that really closely match the preference of the user, but you don't recommend those 20. You recommend five out of those. And then in the circle around it, which is close but less you pick two in the circle around that you pick two and then you get a diversification and then you get the option of the the customer showing behavior outside of its bubble so they have their bubble but you show information outside of it and then applying techniques like taking that behavior into account in your algorithm you can make sure they can escape uh, their bubble
4: maybe that answered my second question because when i'm in the netflix bubble for say a month and I uh, saw all the Marvel films, for uh, for example. I want to see something else, but it keeps posting me the same um, movies, you know. And I think like oh, I'm f- tired of it, so I I throw the the app away or something, or want to do something else. Or you know, so that, that's that's a tricky one, I
1: think. So. Building on what Neil said, you can do that, and uh, something underlying what you said is you can make. Like, the, Classically, there, there are four ways to go, four classes of algorithms to go make recommendations like that, either on product or on content. And the distinction that I think is particularly useful here is, are you basing it on how items are similar? So, okay, you watched one Marvel movie, now you watch another Marvel movie. Or are you basing it on user behavior similarity? People who liked things that you like and therefore are similar to you, they like these other things too. And that second one can then help you break out of that bubble of similar content.
0: Yeah, no, um Also, in that case, I think um, from from a company perspective, in this case, Netflix, um, it's it's probably not a big issue for them anyway, because it's a really it's it's the exception, uh, probably. So they're optimizing for the larger group, and if it doesn't work for uh, that five percent that are all the exceptions, doesn't really matter, as long as it works for that ninety five percent, it's making them a lot of money. Any more questions? Yes. Go ahead.
4: Um, I guess this
1: is kind of on the same vein, but in an ecosystem where you're doing kind of like machine learning um, testing and a lot of personalization, wouldn't um, an excessive amount of personalization like dilute the noise and like the variance and therefore your opportunities for discovering new insights of the testing aspect? Because if you're through excessive personalization, if you're creating kind of cohesive experiences, then you're limiting yourself from highly variant experiences where you might find new insights.
0: Or, or maybe there's an algorithm pro- promoting that. <laughs>
1: so yes, I, th- I think there are a couple, couple of parts of the answer. One is literally that. You're balancing exploring versus exploiting to the earlier discussion, right? If you're creating these highly cohesive experiences and just optimizing for those because you know they work, then you're exploiting the knowledge you have and you've chosen to swing the balance away from, yeah. from time to time, I want some randomness. I want some diversity. Maybe I get something other than Marvel. Maybe I get a non-cohesive part of the experience so that you can continue learning um, is one part. The other part is if you're using a system that has a bunch of contextual data fed into it, you can then slice the data and learn. Maybe the machine's doing it already, but you can yourself as part of the analytics after the fact glean insights that maybe weren't that obvious before, right? Okay, you have this homogeneous experience for this group, but when I slice it by mobile or weekdays or people who've been here twice before, people who've been a customer more than three years, you learn something new and you're able to create a new experience out of the data that's already there even though the thing is creating cohesive experiences. Anything else?
0: Yeah, I think it uh, uh, makes sense to always have some some part of your group that you always randomize or, or test or... Uh, do some multi arm bandit, but there's also always a group that uh, doesn't uh, get the treatment, but is, is randomized and uh, what they get and see how that works. Maybe there's something better.
1: So we tend to use that anyway, so that we as folks doing optimization can say, look, I made us a lot of money yeah. because, <laughs> because otherwise you do before, after analysis too. with all the problems that come with it. So we always encourage a hold back group, even yeah. though it's not for that reason.
0: Yeah, but it helps. Yeah. yeah. Next question, anyone? Um, let's see, if we're oh yeah, we do have a question, yes? yes.
3: Um, so okay, with personal personalization, you have a lot of options to fill the website. And how to analyze all those options?
2: That depends totally on um, which state you are, by the way. Um, so, I think this guy already said in his, in his presentation, when you start with rule-based, it's, it's fairly easy. I mean, you have one rule versus the other. So you test for that. And the moment you get more into machine learning, you are starting to think, at least I started to think, all right, this is just algorithm version A, this is algorithm version B, and version C, and version D. And now I'm doing a multivariate test where the the content is done by algorithm content A, and the the product recommendation is done by number B, and then I cross that, and then you move from there. So, It asks quite a lot from your tracking, I think, because you need to track a lot of more stuff that's being shown to the user. But at the same time, you're doing that already because that's what's feeding your algorithm. So to start doing algorithms, you need to measure a lot. Like you wanna know what did they see, what did they click, how long, that sort of thing. And the moment you have that, it's adding a version to it. So this is algorithm A, and that's at least how I approached uh, that problem.
1: Two additional thoughts to add. um, in trying to analyze the data, I would suggest start with the strategy. You know, what's the business goal you're trying to achieve? Okay, which user flow corresponds to changing that? Where are the big drop-offs? All right, we're focusing our energy here. Then, just, did it produce the results you wanted? I mean, ultimately, right? Because you can analyze the personalization in particular if you have a lot of contextual data forever, infinitely. So, you know, just see, did it ultimately produce the results? One, that's that's the biggest thing that will matter. Then when you're trying to gain additional insights, you can use analytics to slice and dice a million ways. You could also use it to just find things that are unexpected, things that over or under index relative to what you expected. So you can say, oh, we tried these two things and for everyone they were shown, it performed like this. But for mobile, it was like up here. Or for, you know, uh, uh, in Belgium, it was down here, right? And and those outliers can be instructive if they're not tiny audience sizes. And so tuning the way you're looking at it rather than trying to boil the ocean for those outliers when they're big enough can be also helpful.
0: Are there any specific uh, uh, personalization that w- when you have a new client that you always say, okay, we should do this. Um, these usually work, uh, maybe in a specific vertical, but what are the... It's <laughs> you both nodding. very. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, th- there are multiple tricks you can apply there. Yeah. I mean, uh, a customer never comes in sort of empty. I mean, there's always they're coming from another place. They're coming in direct f- via f- some device at a certain location, yep. a certain geo. So there's a lot of information you already have that you can apply to some, in some sense to your website. So saying, I always love the, the, the cold user problem. They're called to a certain extent. You don't have a full profile, but they are never without information. Unless they say, yeah, I don't wanna be personalized, ignore all cookies, then yeah, sure. But then that's not my problem anymore
0: okay yeah sure
1: um i think part of why it's valuable to try a bunch of ideas is because there are no universal truths right it's one thing that works in one environment may not work in another uh and so it's why you want to be able to iterate rapidly that having been said we do you know from experience as i bet a bunch of us have points of view on you know on an e-commerce cart page here's some high probability plays to run on a checkout page are some on a pdp page Here are some okay that could be a long list the one that we almost always talk about that we all know we should do, but we don't, is to treat existing customers and prospects differently. We treat them the same, often because we're just accountable for acquisition, so we don't care. Yep. But if you take that existing customer and show them the latest thing you developed, or give them cross sell or upsell, or ask them to recommend so you can drive more acquisition you typically have the content already and could just well
0: and and, uh, but i guess also many businesses they don't know the customer if they're returning not every customer is logged in so that might be an issue for them
1: and you can then use the system to remember have they ever logged in yeah and use that accordingly
0: if they're using the same browser, 100, percent just <laughs> like ads, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unless exactly.
1: you're using a system that connects them, but that's a whole different privacy question, unrelated.
0: Uh, yeah, we already had that. Uh. <laughs> um, but um, so there are certain things that 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 work. What would you say? is What, what were the most surprising things that you saw in uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, personalizations? Things that unexpectedly had a huge effect, or the other way around? Do you think? well, this should have had an effect and didn't do anything.
1: So, at least for me, the answer is, like, all the time. There's not one. There's so many because there aren't universal truths, right? It's not always true that a red button works. It's not always true that, you know, some huge change is what matters. And we've had things that, like, intuitively made total sense, right? You remember that somebody's been here before, you show their competitor logos in a B2B environment, didn't matter. And then we have stuff that we thought would be, wouldn't matter and did. We had a e-commerce customer, they tried like recently viewed items to drive up cart size, they tried changing how the products were presented, tried more calls to action, tried bigger pricing, all this stuff. The biggest impact on that page in this particular one was emotionally affirmative language at the top of the cart. They, this was selling women's jewelry. This looks great on you. Good choice. We like that. In yeah. that environment, in that moment, it made a difference. I could imagine in a B2B environment, wouldn't matter at all. Yeah. But there it did. And so it's the you asked for the exception. I feel like that's actually the rule. It happens all the time.
0: That, that's the great thing about our job,
1: right? Yeah.
2: Yes. Um, maybe one, one example that I experienced where we created a um, carousel with uh, products that were pretty similar, basically, to the one you were looking at or have been looking at. Um, and the funny, thing, the funny thing was the, the click-through of the carousel was through the roof. It, it tripled. It was immense. The only downside was, in the end, people bought less. So basically what we've shown there is the classical problem of choice overload where we say, yeah, here you have a t-shirt, you've looked at this, and here we have a bunch of other shirts that are really similar. Have a look.
0: Yeah. We have time for one final audience question.
2: I had to, but um, I'll ask one.
4: Um, One was on the top of my tongue. Um, uh, You can ask the other one. Which is a Dutch expression. Uh, uh, ITP, is that a problem? The tracking protocol? Because Safari... As you know, only stores uh, the cookies for a week, uh, no, two weeks, a week, I think now.
0: I think they went back to 24 hours.
4: Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> but is that a problem for personalization?
2: Um,
4: How do you solve this?
2: It is a problem and it's a solvable problem. So um, move to server side. Uh, cookies. Uh, uh, I know someone you can talk to now. Uh, I won't point to him. There was a previous conversation. Who can help you with that? Uh, no, but there are multiple technological um, Yeah, developments there. So it is solvable and and now it feels to me like sort of an arms race that's going on where uh, there's now new technology which uh, ignores ITP and then there will be something coming up that will block that new technology again. So to me, it's a solvable problem.
0: And there's a lot of money to be made here, so that it will be solved.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Aurélie yeah. Uh, Ar- Ar- wants to comment on that one. <laughs> no,
3: no. I, just, I just had a last question. Do you think that personalization and profiling is the same thing, and should users have a choice?
0: There you go. In the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you might have the answer, Niels. <laughs> no,
2: I'm really thinking hard about this. I need a couple of more beers for before, before this, I think, but I can have a shot. I, I think personalization, it can be based on a profile and you can do it without basic, basically building a profile by doing it on, by not looking at you as an individual, but looking broader. It can be done. Um, but I always think the customer has the full right to say, I don't want personalization, I don't want profile, I want out. And then you do that. And then, uh, like I said before, I literally said, then they are not, as someone responsible for personalization, they're no longer my problem, those customers. Because I say, we'll give them the usual, we'll give them the, the same user experience with filters and, and, and sorting, but it's not based on their behavior anymore. But they have the point. Yes.
0: Good, and I see (laughs) Guy nodding. So uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Guy. Thanks, uh, Niels. And uh, we will be back in, uh, I guess, uh, 10 minutes, and then we'll talk about building and scaling your CRO agency. I already see Daniel Marcus sitting over there, and we also have um, uh, Steven Pavlovich, he's already here now. Uh, You know him from, uh, he was the first uh, keynote speaker today. He will uh, be joining us for that session. So see you in eight minutes.